Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to dive into something new this morning, and uh, something that I don't think uh, City Life, we've ever done this series. So this is brand new, fresh, fresh, spanking new series. So this is your first Sunday. Welcome, welcome. Um, but uh, we're going to get going. Um, is everybody good? It's kind of quiet. All right. Sweet. Good, good, good. Well... Uh, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I get into some conversations every once in a while, and some of those conversations around sports, and the inevitable question sometimes comes up in sports is who is the greatest NBA basketball player of all time, and one of my boys thinks LeBron James is the best, but his old man thinks Michael Jordan is the best. So anyway, it's a constant fight, right? We don't want to get into that controversy here this morning too much. Um, other than that, in my opinion, the reason why uh, Jordan is the better of the players, one, Jordan helped everybody else on the team. And uh, you could argue that about LeBron. But anyway, um, the one significant thing that happened in Jordan's career was a coach named Phil Jackson. And uh, I don't know if you know the kind of history of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan before Phil Jackson kind of hit the scene. But the Bulls, even if they, even regardless of the fact that they had the best basket at the time, you could kind of, you know, not get into the argument. But uh, at the time, uh, all the coaches that had coached Michael Jordan up till Phil Jackson becoming coach always oriented the offense around Michael Jordan. And here comes Phil Jackson. And... The Bulls could never get beyond the conference finals. They could never get to the finals. And so they were hitting the ceiling. And so they bring in Phil Jackson. And one of the things that I love about Phil Jackson is rather than designing an offense around the best player, Jackson insisted on designing the offense to get the best from every player. And I don't know if you know Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. Like all those guys on that team became their best self with Phil Jackson being the coach. And uh, I don't know, most pro athletes love coaches because they know they have blind spots. And I don't know about you, but the more I read the scriptures, the more I see is Jesus is the master coach of all time. Jesus. You think he picked 12 kind of average guys. I mean, fishermen. I mean, these were kind of the, these were kind of average guys, not the most educated they probably bowed out of their kind of educational process around 9 or 10 to help with the family business. And so these are just average guys, but yet Jesus, the Son of God, God coming in the flesh, takes these 12 guys and with them turns the world upside down. Now that's a coach. And he was able to do it in three and a half years. Three and a half years. Took 12 average guys, poured what he had into them, and it turned the world upside down. We see Jesus coaching his earth, the church in the first century through his Holy Spirit, birthing God's new covenant people, 
We see the church expanding in the book of Acts. The churches are, churches are being established all over the known world. Leadership is growing beyond the OG crew. You know, you had the original apostles, but then after a while, those apostles either get martyred or new leaders kind of take their spot, and the OG crew is kind of now gone. But here's Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, guiding his church. And about 65 years later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church is exponentially growing, but yet something happens to one of the apostles. The last living apostle is the Apostle John. And uh, he was the one who was entrusted to take care and shepherd Mary uh, after Jesus was gone. Uh, kind of the, uh, the uh, tradition through the church fathers is that um, it was actually the Apostle John that brought Jesus, uh, Jesus' mother Mary to Ephesus to live uh, after the resurrection. And this angel appears to John. He is exiled from uh, Domitian, the emperor. He's exiled to this island of Patmos, causing too many problems. And now he's kind of imprisoned, but mainly exiled to this island. And this angel appears to the apostle John and gives him a revelation. This revelation is unlike they had ever heard before. Jesus had a few words for this letter of Revelation that we're going to get into over these next few weeks. We're not going to get into the whole book of Revelation. But we are going to get look into the first few chapters of the book of Revelation because Jesus has some coaching that he has to do with seven churches in Asia Minor. And that's the address of this book of Revelation that we're going to dive into. We're just going to get to chapter 4 over the next few weeks. We're not going to dive in 5 and beyond. But we're going to look at... Uh, at what Jesus has to say to these seven churches. It's about 65 years after his death and resurrection. And now this, this, these churches have taken a little life of their own. They have maybe strayed a little bit from the path, and Coach Jesus is coming in to give some correction. And so that's where we're going to go over these next kind of handful of weeks, we're going to look at the words that Jesus brings to these seven churches. And you may find a little bit of your own church in these churches. You may find a little bit of what you see in the big C church in some of these churches. And what I want us to kind of get through this series is like, man, there's always time for the Lord to come correct us and bring us right back on track. And our heart being needs to be responsive to, like, Jesus, whatever you have to say to us, our ears are open. Amen? So that's what this whole series is about. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we pray that you would coach us through this book of Revelation. God, that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears. God, take the calluses off of our hearts to hear your voice through these words. Father, pray that you would meet us where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a little more backdrop. Uh, the book of Revelation, John is exiled on the island of Patmos 65 years after Jesus, around 95 A.D. And uh, instead of kind of doing a normal background that I normally do on books, we're just going to dive in because the first part of this kind of gives us some great background. So, Revelation 1, verse 1 
This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Man, what a good intro. Kind of heavy, right? He blesses, you're blessed. Anyone who reads this is going to be blessed by God. But this is a revelation. This is an apocalypsis, uh, an unveiling, a revealing of who Jesus is to the world. And it goes on, verse 4, it says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So, boom. Author, audience, region. Right there, one sentence. Gives us great background. It's a letter, which is important. It's from John, and it's to these seven churches. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before the throne. It's in reference to this... Um, verse in Ezekiel, with wisdom and revelation, the spirit of knowledge, spirit of might, and the fear of the Lord, this kind of multifaceted spirit that's before the throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. John goes on and writes this book in what's called Jewish apocalyptic uh, prose or, or theme in that John uses this type of writing style that we find in Old Testament books. The same writing style, Jewish apocalyptic, is we find in Ezekiel. We find the same type of writing in Daniel. The apocryphal books, you find it in 4th Ezra, and you also find it in 1st Enoch. These, he presents symbolic visions that reveal heavenly perspective in history in light of the final outcome. They're meaningful images drawn from the Old Testament. They're not making up new ones for the future. John, every Every symbolic vision has anchor, is anchored in Old Testament symbology, and John's trying to get them to see what he's talking about. It's not a predictive. This, the book of Revelation, especially over the last hundred years, <laughs> has been kind of taken. A lot of people take the book of Revelation, and they take the, the newspaper, and they begin to try to interpret the book of Revelation with the newspaper, Instead of actually, no, 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 this was a letter to first century Christians. And therefore, we must read this letter as it was written to the audience of first century Christians. But again, this isn't a secret predictive code book about the timing of the end of the world. Sorry, you may have thought it was, but it's not. You're probably still on that trail, huh? Still trying to figure everything out? Yeah, you will be. So anyway... While this book has much to say about Christians in later generations, the fact that, like I said, this letter John is addressing is to the situation of these first century churches. Therefore, the book's meaning must be first anchored with those lenses in mind. 
At the time, Emperor Nero, just 30 years before, 25 years before, Emperor Nero, who was the emperor over Rome, he swung the door wide open to the persecution of Christians. If you've ever studied anything about Emperor Nero, he was one of the most demonized people you could ever dream up. In that he hated Christians so much and persecuted them so much, not only did he feed them to the lions, but he would throw massive, extravagant parties for the elites and to light their parties out in the courtyard. They'd have Christians tarred and burned, and they would be the illumination to their parties. So dark. So anyway... That was Emperor Nero. He opened this door for persecution, and now here comes Domitian. He's the new emperor over Rome, the one who exiled John to Patmos. And he seems, there's not much that we, can, uh, that we know about him specifically with regards to his persecution of Christians. It's not like he amped it up. He just kept it going. So Nero opened the door for the persecution of Christians, and Domitian kept it going. And so the church can imagine from Nero for 25 years, Everywhere around the Roman world, if you were a Christian, you were a target. And after year after year, decade after decade, with no end in sight, their heart is probably asking, God, what is happening? (laughs) What is happening? It got exponentially worse since Jesus resurrected. What's happening? And Revelation to John is Jesus' response to what's happening all around you. In other words, this whole message, this revelation, God's got this. God's got this. He's always had this. And yes, I totally get it. When you're down on the weeds, you don't, you have a really hard time seeing. You know, you've been in an airplane and you're kind of looking down and the clouds look so small, the mountains look so small, the little waves on the ocean you could barely see, but you get down on the ground and it's massive mountains, huge clouds, massive waves. So God's trying to get his people to have a higher perspective. What's going on around you so that you know that you can be anchored in the God who made everything? And Jesus, his son, He knows what he's doing. Jesus wins in the end, and he's brought you on the team. Remain faithful. And that phrase, remain faithful, we're going to see kind of over and over and over and over this theme. Remain faithful. These first few chapters of Revelation, Jesus is going to bring words of coaching and correction to these seven churches. So let's dive in to the first revelation to the church of Ephesus. If you're in a life group, we've been kind of reading through the epistle by Paul, uh, Ephesians. Well, now this is 35 years later after the book of Ephesus was written. 35 years later, after Paul writes this magnum opus about the gospel. I mean, if you haven't read Ephesians, man, your wood may be a little, a little wet. Like, read Ephesians, and your faith will just get stoked. So, Let's dive in. This is what Jesus comes 35 years after Paul sent his epistle, and this is what he says. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, 
John mentions the word seven, 58 times. Seven is kind of a, seven always comes up. It's a, it's a number of completion, biblically speaking. Whenever seven comes up, it's like, man, there's something completed. Anyway, so what's up these seven stars, these seven gold lampstands? Well, just the verse right before in 1 verse 20, it says, this is the meaning of the seven stars. He kind of tells us right out. This is the meaning of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven gold lampstand. The seven stars are the angels, and we'll get into that for a second. The angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here you got these stars and you got these lampstands. Lampstands are the churches, and these stars, he says, the angel of the church. Now, biblically speaking, there could be totally an angel that God deploys over every church of Jesus Christ all over the planet. He could be addressing that. But now, this word angelios, that, he, that we interpreted, or the, the interpreters interpreted angel, it's also kind of referred to as overseer or pastor. So, we could kind of get into the theological kind of like conundrum of like, is there an angel or is there a pat? I mean, what's he referring to? But the leadership over, you could kind of summarize that. I'm, I, this is to the leadership over this church. And he says this, I know all the things you do, verse 2. I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they're liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Man, that's some pretty good encouragement, right? Like, man, we've been at this for almost six decades with the Lord. Jesus is kind of doing a lot of things in this church, through this church, a lot of, a lot of, warnings that Jesus gave during his lifetime about wolves coming in sheep's clothing, these people have heeded Jesus' words. Paul says the same, whoa, Paul, wow, whoa, little past puberty. But in his farewell speech to the elders, Paul in Acts 20 warns them that grievous wolves would invade the flock. And these people have actually heeded Jesus is in Paul's words to say, yeah, actually, we've pushed these people kind of out. We've protected the flock from these wolves, these false prophets or hypocrites. This, uh, yep, I already said all that. The Ephesian church was the one who did, just didn't lie, rely on lofty words. Man, I heard it, I got it, I get it, boom. No. They were the ones actually sacrificially laying down their lives to do the work of ministry in Ephesus. And Jesus is like, man, I see all that. Man, I see how, how you're just standing strong on my word. You're not deviating. You're anchored in him. I see all this. You've stood strong. You've done the right things. You've remained true. And what a good encouragement to any church. But verse 4, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Whew. Man, just like the words of Jesus, right? 
can come with a dose of encouragement and at the same time in the same breath bring some correction. But that correction with it kind of brings instruction and hope to say, you're not at the cul-de-sac at the dead end. You're not at the bottom of the pit. There's actually hope where you're at. Don't give up. But you've lost your first love. I'm going to pinpoint the very thing that's holding you back. You're doing all the things, but you've lost your love for the Lord. The word you've lost, it's, it's, it comes with a, a word image. It's like this love is like slipping through your fingers. It's slipped through your fingers. As you're out working and doing all these great things, your actually heart for God has slipped through your fingers. The Ephesian church was a frenzy of activity for the Lord. They're busy. They're doing all the things, yet their heart connection to God and others was diminished. And so the risen king makes his appeal. And it is, and it's, there's kind of there's this, there's a journey of return. What does he say? He says, first, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Now, there have been a couple times where this was the two-by-four across my face. And it was like I knew I had lost my first love. And so what's his encouragement? Go back to where that dropped off. And actually, if you give yourself five or ten seconds, you'll be able to actually know exactly where that season was or that moment was where afterwards things were totally different. Things were numb callous, cold, that I'll keep doing the stuff, I'll do my religious duty, but when it comes to actually me being intimate with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's for somebody else, that's not for me. And so we have kind of an American church that's filled with people who say they're Christians, but yet they're foreigners to Christ. So it's always the case in the life of a Christian that when he's gotten away from the Lord or fallen in any sin, they must go back in your mind to the point where, they, that where you went astray and you're like, Lord, I repent. I repent. I remember that moment where my heart decided I'm going to pursue this love more than that love. I remember that time where I was going to pursue this relationship way more intensely than my love for you or this career or this job opportunity, or this place, this, this kind of season. Go back. Remember. And then secondly, he says, repent. It's a strong word. Repent. Repentance is the admission that the fault is ours. It's so easy. We're almost trained in our culture to not assume the responsibility ever. Don't assume responsibility. Our politicians have not been responsibility for 80 years, so you think, like, you know, we're kind of catching up. But it's like, no, a culture that doesn't assume any responsibility, it's somebody else's fault. My behavior is somebody else's fault. My attitude is somebody else's fault. The way I see the world is somebody else's fault. But repentance says no to all that. You can never get to repentance with those lenses. It's Throwing those lenses off to say, man, I'm broken, I'm destitute. I, there's nothing I can do without God in my life because I will keep doing the same thing because I can't change myself. I can look down and deep and, you know, it's like, man, I found more darkness in there. It's like, man, the answer isn't here. It's way outside yourself. 
way outside this culture. So repentance. It's the hardest thing about repentance is the acceptance of personal responsibility for our failure. For once the responsibility is accepted, and when you accept it, man, there's fruit of repentance. More mature, more godly, more God-filled life will result. So remember, if you lost your first love, remember, repent. And then he says, do. Third, he says, dude, properly healthy biblical repentance divides people into two things, drives people to two things. First, it drives to fling ourselves on the grace of God, saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. But this repentance also drives us to action in order to bring forth fruits that's appropriate with repentance. I meet a handful of people that come and they're like, man, I've struggled with this for decades. Man, I've had a hard time. Man, I've repented so many times. No man has truly repented when he does the same things again. And you may go back to actually what you def- how you define repentance. Because I can go to God and say, I'm sorry, God, clean my slate. But there's a difference in between that and God, I repent. I'm taking all that. I'm seeing how it steal, how it stole, how it killed, how it destroyed my life, how it was sucking life out of me, how it was trying to get me off track. Repentance is I am turning the other way. I'm never going back. The great truth of Christianity is that nobody needs to stay where you're at. Nobody. The proof of repentance is a changed life. A life changed by our effort with cooperation with the grace of God. I repent. God does everything else. I obey. God does everything else. Come back to your first love, Ephesians. John, Jesus, is crying out to his church. Come back to your first love. Love Jesus like you did at first. What did you do if you're a follower of Jesus? And that maybe this word is for you. What did you do at first? And I remember when, I, when, that, when that sense of forgiveness and that, that newness of life. Man, what did you do? I know what I did. Man, I was in the Word every day because His Word was like life. It was like food. It was like it nourished my soul every day. It was like when I was seeing people, it was like I wasn't just seeing people. I was seeing people made in God's image, that there was kind of a new lens to life. Love Jesus like you did at first. Love people, the people of God like you did at first. So here's this big word by Jesus. It's like six verses. I see all the great things you do. But the one thing I have against you, never lose the anchor to your soul, your first love. It powers everything else. When you don't have this love of God, it turns into religious duty, and the world knows the difference. All right, let's finish this. He goes on, Revelation 2, 6. He says, and then he kind of pivots back. He's like, encouragement, encouragement, hard word, 
And then he comes back and he's like, a little more encouragement. <laughs> he says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nic- Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay. Okay, what's this mean? Well, they, these guys come up a little bit later, so we're going to get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty when they come up in Pergamum, because Pergamum is a church that's actually giving in to these guys. But for the church of Ephesus, he says, hey, you hate the teaching of these guys, and I hate it too. So it's like one big dose, one last dose of like, I'm going to encourage that as well. But these Nicolaitans, they are an emerging sect uh, led by followers of Nicholas of Antioch. And we find Nicholas of Antioch in Acts 6. And he's actually one of the deacons appointed with Stephen, who were men of, uh, full of faith in God's word. Nicholas was one of these people. Well, Nicholas had said some things later on, and some of his followers took what he said and kind of twisted it. And what, the, what had ended up happening is they, they began to have a theology that blended paganism and Christianity. Because they saw kind of like, uh, well, let me read my notes, and I'll probably have a better job doing that. In general, Nicolaitans believed that there was nothing wrong with serving Christ and participating in pagan practices of eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual perversion. I mean, it was the culture in which they lived. You know, God loves the pagans too, right? So let's not do, let's not, this holy living, let's, let's get in the way of the pagans serving God. So could we just kind of move on to where we wouldn't have to kind of like really make a hard call? And this bent the ears of young people. Man, you don't have to live holy and separate. Man, that's kind of the old G way, right? We found a new way. We can blend Roman culture and Christianity and still feel good about ourselves. Again, we'll get into it more, but the, because of the church, they actually get uh, in Pergamum, they give in. But again, for the church of Ephesus, you stood strong. You fought back compromise. You didn't compromise with the world like these Nicolaitans do. And there's actually the things I hate. Now, why does, he, why does God say I hate? Now, I don't know. God's God. It's above my pay grade. But hate is a strong word. Hate is a really strong word. And it's interesting. I've just been wrestling with this. I have no clue why he puts this sentence after his rebuke. And I'm wondering, is, is like religious duty is one thing, but compromise with the world is maybe a little bit different. Like one is a, is, a, is a decision, the other is a heart. There's something, there's something about our heart that kind of gets tied up into the things of the world, and Jesus is coming and saying, hey, no, 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 wait, you did a good job. You cut that off. You're not compromising with the world. Good on you. But we'll get into that a little bit next week. Lastly, Jesus ends with a promise to them. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, what we're going to find is Jesus gives seven promises to these seven churches. And these promises are mind-boggling. 
says, he who endures to the end, those who remain faithful, those, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a great promise of God, those who endure to the end, those who still have their first love intact. He will grant you full access to the tree of life, the paradise of God, infinite, eternal life, eternally. It says that those who eat of the tree of life live forever. And so here's this promise. If you endure to the end, if you conquer, if you remain faithful, don't compromise with the world. Have your first love. Do the things he's asked us to do. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is a great heart check for us. All, actually, all these messages are going to be a great heart check for this church, for us, to say, God, have your way. God, have we lost our first love? God wants to restore that love today. And so as we kind of end, I just felt like we could end with a little communion. As we kind of enjoy and celebrate the sacrifice of his broken body and his shed blood, that we get to participate, that you and I get to be priests of the Most High God together. Amen? So if, if Will, you could come up. Thank you. How we do communion here if this is your first Sunday is uh, just kind of come down the middle aisle, grab your elements, kind of head back to your seat on the side, and then uh, hold those, and we'll take those together. Amen? All right, we'll do that. Come on up.
Father God. God, we just thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. Father, for without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Father, you came. God, pursued us when we were not pursuing you. God, you loved us when we weren't loving you. When we're loving ourselves, full of pride and rebellion. But God, you came and rescued us. So, Father, if this is a message for the first time hearing that, God, if, if we've never surrendered our life to you, and I feel like you're inviting us to do that now. So if that's you and you've never surrendered your life to God, just say, Father, come into my life and have your way. God, I surrender my past, my present, my future to you, and I want you to be my king, my leader, my Lord. I repent of all known sin. And I come to you humbly. But God, for the rest of us, Father, we may have been walking with you for years, decades. And Father, this word this morning of return to your first love. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here in this room that needed to hear that word, God, I pray that as we take this communion together, God, that they would be different people. God, that they would be re-anchored into your heart. God, that they would know that you are near and that their hearts, affections, and meanderings would be directed to you. So, Father, we just thank you for your broken body and your shed blood to restore us into your family, to adopt us, and make us, make us priests of the Most High God. Lord, we thank you. And God, as we take this communion, God, we surrender ourselves again afresh to you today as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight. So, Father, thank you, God, your death and resurrection to bring us in to the Holy of Holies. So if there's any of us here that need to repent of God, that one thing that this is what I, how I lost my love for you. So this happened. So Father, I pray that we'd go back. Repent. God, restore our hearts to you, restore our minds to you, restore our affections to you, restore our strength to you, in Jesus' name. So as your people, we just together celebrate your broken body. This is my body. Take it. Father, we're just so grateful for your shed blood on the cross, the cross that you didn't deserve, a cross that we deserved, but Father, you took punishment upon yourself so we didn't have to endure death. God, now you've brought us into the kingdom of your dear son, and so because of his blood, we celebrate our covenant with you and our love for you, in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup. Father, 
May we go out in your strength. May we go out in your power. And may we go out in your love. God, that we would love you fresh this week. God, we'd love people around us fresh. God, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org, and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.